If you have or do listen to that brief uh, sort of thought uh, given by Al Mohler, he'll tell you how our previous denomination from which we left, uh, the PCUSA, now far more liberal than it was even in 1973, asked permission of the songwriters to change that one line, the one line that talks about God's wrath being satisfied. They wanted to change it to God's love being magnified. Nothing wrong with that, of course, but their motive was clear. They denied the fact that Jesus died in our place to take upon himself the wrath of God. They wanted to uh, erase from people's minds a, a fact or the truth that God is full of wrath because of our sins. And so the songwriters, of course, refused to change the words, kept them the way they were, and you will never find that in a PCUSA hymnal or any songbook they use because they just can't sing it. We rejoice that we can sing it. We rejoice in the truth that it speaks. And we're so thankful for that and so many other hymns that continue to be written, even by many within our own church, as a testimony that God still speaks uh, as his congregations uh, sing his praises. Uh, and as they draw upon the word, his final word that he has given to us in Christ. Take your Bibles then. We're in Isaiah 61 this morning. So many of our hymns uh, this morning purposefully chosen because of the themes that come in Isaiah 61. Uh, you'll find that in your pew Bible on page 737. Page 737. Last week in our study of Isaiah 60, we began to see how the prophet in these last seven chapters turns his attention to the glory of what God has prepared for his people. Even as the Apostle Paul writes, as we noted, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Isaiah is writing to a people who are captives in Babylon. Remember, he's writing to a future generation in these chapters, 40 through 66 especially. And he's using language of deliverance and restoration to show them that the Lord who is faithful to all that he has promised will deliver them in a way and to an end that far surpasses their wildest imagination. And as he does throughout his prophecy, he uses the language of the temporal, temporal release from captivity in Babylon, temple restoration, temporal restoration of the temple, etc. He uses that language to teach and describe eternal blessings and joys that he has prepared for his people, a people who will be made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, gathered together in one body, one people to the praise of his glorious grace. And so using the imagery of a sunrise in chapter 60, the Lord tells us that the sun, S-O-N, has risen in his first coming and finished work in resurrection. That sun has risen upon them and he is making them whom he calls the city of the Lord and the Zion of the Holy One of Israel, beautiful and glorious. You see, it's the people who are Zion. It's the people who are the city of the Lord, the new Jerusalem, as the New Testament clearly teaches us. 
He goes on in that chapter 60 and onward throughout these remaining chapters to speak of the glories of heaven as he will do uh, in the future as well. Glorious things, the hymn writer says, of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy shore repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. That language comes directly from Isaiah chapter 60. And it's a wonderful reminder of the glories that still await us today. As I said last week in these finals chapters, we will spend more of our time in heaven than anywhere else. And that, again, is a good thing. And so now we come to chapter 61. I agree with E.J. Young and other commentators in his commentary when they say there is a close relationship between this chapter 61 and the preceding one. Having described the future blessings of Zion, Isaiah goes on to introduce the one who is to bring that blessing. And that one, of course, we know from our study of Isaiah so far is the suffering servant of the Lord. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so stand as we read these 11 verses of Isaiah 61. Stand as we hear God's word, as we hear him speak. And may he speak not only to our ears, which we pray he will open, but to our hearts that we pray he will open as well. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, 
and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Thus far the reading of God's word. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray your blessing now upon us and all that we do in this hour of worship as this time comes, as we hear your word. In these moments, open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word by your spirit. Might we receive it with great joy and may we result in that praise and exaltation of you, our great God. We pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the great and I believe most important, most important rules on biblical, of biblical interpretation is that the Bible is its own interpreter, which is really another way of saying that God is his own interpreter. For instance, when one passage may seem somewhat unclear to us, we ought to rightly allow clearer passages to guide us in our understanding of the less clear ones. That is the way the word of God functions in our lives and where we grow in our understanding of the things of Christ. Related to this general rule that we are to allow the New Testament, uh, related to this, there is another rule that tells us that we should allow the New Testament to guide us in our understanding of the Old Testament. How Jesus and Paul and the other writers understood the prophets is far more an important part of our biblical interpretation than we usually allow it to be. As the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, applies it, and fulfills it in the person of Christ, we ought to let those things instruct us with regard to uh, the ways uh, that we read the Old Testament prophets especially. This morning, I believe we have one of the best examples of this in the opening words of Isaiah chapter 61. You remember that passage read in the New Testament reading from Luke 4. The setting, if you want to turn to that, you can, but or you can just listen to the setting as you've heard it read. The setting is Nazareth, his hometown. In that chapter, Jesus comes and Luke tells us that his fame is going throughout all the earth as he begins his earthly ministry. Uh, but in that chapter, beginning in verse 16, he comes to Nazareth and enters the synagogue, which was his ordinary practice. As he does, he takes his seat and someone gives him a scroll open to this very point of Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus stands and he reads uh, the portion of Isaiah quoted from these first two verses in Isaiah 61. He closes the scroll, sits down, and begins to teach. And his first point is this. I tell you the truth that in your presence on this day, these words have been fulfilled. I am sure if you go back and listen to previous sermons, there would have been many times where I would have said to you, if there was a place and a time that I could wish to appear and to be present, this would be it. 
Now, there are many places in the Bible where we would say, if there was one place you could go, where would it be? This is probably one of the highlights for me and one of the top choices, I would say, to imagine sitting there in that congregation, in the synagogue, hearing our Lord and Savior read and speak from God's holy word. Imagine the marveling crowd at his teaching and his claim as he made it that today, in this very place, in your presence, these words have been fulfilled. In our thoroughly modern times where memes and short videos define a moment or a movement, this event in Luke chapter 4 and the words of Jesus could be referred today with all due respect as an ultimate mic drop moment. You know that image, right? When someone says something that ends all discussion and conversation and simply drops the mic. That's what this would have been like in that day. It would have stunned the audience, left them literally speechless. And yet in God's providence, it led to their rejection of Jesus as Messiah because he began to tell them of his ministry, that it would go beyond just the Jews and to the Gentiles as well, something Isaiah has been telling us all along in our study. Jesus, of course, knew this, that it was not meant only for Israel, but that his coming as a son rising upon his people was meant for Jew and Gentile alike. And they didn't like that. They wanted to kill him, and so they stood against him. And the text ends with Jesus simply passing through their midst untouched. A miracle, surely, but one which testifies to their rejection of Christ and his entering into his gospel ministry. The very fulfillment of the words that we read this morning in Isaiah 61. And so turn back if you haven't. Uh, already, if you've left it, turn back to Isaiah 61. Have your Bible open as we go through this passage together. Jesus claimed in Luke 4 to have fulfilled this passage and all that it teaches. As we already saw, it would be through Jesus, the suffering servant, that the blessings of the covenant will come to his people. And so we read verse 1 and we see the reference to the Lord, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And in an ultimate sense, we know that that me is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This has led, of course, many commentators to argue that what we have in Isaiah 61 is in fact a fifth servant song. You remember perhaps in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50 and then 53, the ultimate expression of the suffering servant, that we have these songs of Isaiah describing the work and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is that suffering servant. Now, there is some merit, of course, to this view, and I certainly believe that ultimately the picture here is of the Lord Jesus Christ by his own testimony in Luke chapter 4. But Jesus, in speaking of the fact that he was the fulfillment of this, did not negate a truth that we also need to understand, that in a very real way, this passage is also true of Isaiah the prophet. He was anointed, set apart, if you will, by God as a prophet to proclaim the good news. And all prophets like him, as well as all of those who would follow, even in the days of Christ, the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament would be anointed and set apart, if you will, for their prophetic ministry. 
And so I think Christ is the one ultimately through whom we see these things obviously being accomplished. There is no other prophet lesser than Christ that can actually fulfill these things. It belongs only to Jesus to make them fully realized. But all of the prophets served as ministers who proclaimed the good news, who spoke the words of liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. They testified of another, a greater prophet to come, the greatest prophet, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I agree then with Calvin, who says this, this chapter ought therefore to be understood in such a sense that Christ, who is the head of the prophets, holds the chief place and alone makes all of these revelations, but that Isaiah and the other prophets and the apostles contribute their services to Christ and each performs his part in making known Christ benefits. And thus we see that those things which Isaiah said would be accomplished by Jesus and have now been actually accomplished in him. That's the picture of what we have in chapter 61. It is a picture of the blessings that God had told us in chapter 60 and answering the question, how will these blessings come to be? How will they come about? They will come about through a person, the work of the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus Christ. There are only two sections here. I think we can divide it this way easily. One is much longer and larger than the other. Verses 1 through 9, we see the blessings of this salvation. The blessings of this salvation. And then we see in verses 10 and 11, so true throughout Isaiah, the response of the people. There is a change in verse 10, a change of speaker. We have here the speaker being the prophet and Christ ultimately taking up these words as applying to himself. And then in verse 10 and 11, we have the the voice of the redeemed speaking and the pronouncement of their joy and blessings and their response to that in worship and praise to God. So look with me as we go through this passage together this morning in verses 1 through 9, the blessings of salvation. Now, let us be clear at the outset that what the, or what the prophet is speaking of here and what Jesus has in mind is salvation. Ultimately, not the restoration again from captivity. Remember, that's the audience. But the blessings that go beyond that captivity, of which that captivity spoke only by picture, and in, in, a, in a sort of vague way, the fullness of this is seen in the blessings of our salvation. And so he is anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor would be consistent with Jesus' own words, the, the poor in spirit, the broken, the poverty of spirit. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, brokenhearted and grieving over their sins, to proclaim liberty to the captives. We are bound in a prison, as it were, as captives held in the power of sin and of Satan himself and the opening of those prison doors to those who are again pictured as bound. These are images of our being bound in sin, which we are by nature, apart from God's grace in our lives. 
And so this is all about the blessings of salvation that Isaiah here is speaking to proclaim verse two, the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Jesus stopped in his quotation. He didn't quote the latter part of verse two. But in this, we have a picture of both the Lord's favor to his elect, to his redeemed people, and then the day of vengeance of our God, which is a picture of God's judgment and his wrath against all of those who are opposed to him, who are opposed to his Christ, who will not bow the knee to Jesus. That's a picture of God who both redeems his people and punishes the unrighteous and the wicked. And that's all part of the the pronouncement of the gospel that Jesus himself and Isaiah here is proclaiming. To grant, verse 3, to those who mourn in Zion and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. As you follow the teaching of this passage, you look down in verse 6, and Isaiah tells us that you shall be called the priests of the Lord. This is the imagery of the, the uh, garments of priesthood. And what the Lord is saying here to us is that he makes his people a kingdom of priests. He makes them to be those who minister to him. They are, verse 6 again, ministers of our God. And so verse 3 is talking about that exchange that takes place. That in the place of one, he will give something, another, a greater thing. So a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the ashes of mourning, the oil of gladness instead of that mourning and sadness over our sin, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, unwilling or unable to come into the Lord's presence. We now come with lips of praise overflowing to our God. They will be called, verse 3 again, oaks of righteousness, not immovable or not movable and, and always going to and fro, but oaks that are established and set and secure. That's the picture there. They will be a planting of the Lord, again, as we've seen in Isaiah, in the earth that he, the Lord, may be glorified. You'll remember, and we mentioned this several times, Isaiah 5 is a picture of God's intention in planting Israel in the land and in the world, in the earth, that they would be to the praise of our God, but they failed. And God will accomplish this by his people as he plants them in the earth, a planting of the Lord. Verse 4 talks about the idea of the ruination that sin brings. Uh, Sin brings ruin and destruction. We know that according to God's word. Everything God's word teaches about sin is it brings destruction everywhere it goes and death and decay. But verse 4 tells us of what Jesus will do and has done through his work, building up ancient ruins, raising up former devastations, repairing ruined cities, the devastations of many nations. Again, speaking in the temporal of the eternal things, what's in view here is that the ruination of sin and all that is caused will be reversed. And what Jesus comes to do is to restore those things. This is a picture of restoration, of renewal that Jesus alone brings uh, to all who would follow him and to all who love him. 
The hymn writer Philip Bliss captures this idea in one of the great hymns that we sing, usually uh, during the Easter season, but it's fitting any time. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Ruined sinners, under the weight and penalty of our sins, bound in captives to our sins, set free now as if from a prison. These are the blessings, Isaiah tells us, Jesus tells us, of all of those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, sinners saved by grace. Now those blessings continue, you see in verses 5 through 9, the remaining part of this. This is a restoration again, not only of the ruined things, but a restoration now to the place of God's favor and blessing. That's what this picture is about, verses 5 and following. Strangers here and foreigners, consistent with Isaiah, is a reference to the Gentiles who will be brought in. They will be brought in to serve the purposes of God. This is not a picture of indentured slavery. This is a picture of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the midst of God's people. And together, all Jews and Greek or Gentiles alike, all who are redeemed will be called the priests of our God, which main emphasis is that we now have access to God in prayer, ministering to him, laboring uh, in his stead here on this earth. Uh, One of the commentators I was reading this week said that the picture here is of the, the, the picture here is of the believers who are and have become priests to the Lord on behalf of those who are in the world, that we have the privilege of interceding and praying for the world in which we live, pleading for God's mercies. That access is all because he has made us to be priests unto our God. You heard earlier that the Reformation service this year is not happening at Covenant, I will tell you, we'll have the donuts, though, Lord willing, because those are always a big part of that. But we'll gather here at our church that evening. We'll sing some of the great hymns of the Reformation, and we'll meditate upon some of the great truths that came out of that wonderful time. But one of the things that came out of the Reformation, which is really earth-shattering and life-changing, is this idea of the priesthood of all believers The Reformation stood against a priestly class that that only themselves had access to God. The Reformation said that every believer, small or great, no matter who you are, now because of Jesus, has direct access to the Father through the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our faithful high priest who intercedes for us. That access allows us week after week to pray for one another as we come corporately with one voice to the Father. It allows us day after day to pray for our brothers and sisters in need, to remember the the different prayer requests that we have here and to intercede for one another. It's because we are now priests. We don't need another to stand in that place of mediator. We have Christ And he's made us his priests unto God and ministers to our God as well. The eating of the wealth of nations in verse 6, the glory of the nations is a reference again to the glories that the Gentiles will bring into the kingdom. 
Instead of their shame, he will give them a double portion of blessing of the forgiveness of our sins. Remember Isaiah 40, comfort ye my people, comfort ye my people. He removes the shame of our sins and the guilt of our sins and replaces it with a double portion of his blessing and the joys of our forgiveness through Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful, beautiful picture that sort of continues in these verses the land they shall possess a double portion and they shall have everlasting joy before him for i the lord love justice i hate robbery and wrong he's rebuking them there reminding them of the ways in which they should walk i will faithfully give them the reward for their works and i will make an everlasting covenant with them this everlasting covenant is a reference to the new covenant which refers to the spirit being given and the blessings of that salvation that Isaiah is talking about. I love verse 9. It's a great encouragement to us as covenant parents regarding our children and our children's children. The Lord is a covenant-making and keeping God. The promise, Peter said on that first Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the promise, he says, of the spirit is not only for you, but it is to your children and your children's children and to all who are far off, to the Gentiles as well, all whom the Lord our God will call. You see, that last phrase governs the whole thing. It's all whom the Lord our God will call. He is sovereign in his choosing. There are no literal guarantees, if you will, but there is in the covenant a great hope to us as we raise our children in the fear and nurture of the and admonition of the Lord, that God will indeed call them and unite them to his own people, that they together with us would praise the God who saves sinners. And so verse 9 says, Their offspring shall be known among the nations. They shall be recognized and seen, descendants in the midst of the people, and they shall be noted and seen as those who are the offspring of the Lord, whom he has blessed. You know, I don't know if you think about how you're viewed by others or uh, how the world views us. You know, the world has its standards of, of how it views success and how it views uh, all the status that we think about in this world. But this verse reminds us that our greatest joy and our greatest blessing, it's not it's not a tangible blessing of things. It, it's far richer, far deeper than that. We, as we live our lives, give testimony to the world that we are his offspring that he blesses. That's a wonderful and glorious picture that we ought to keep in the forefront of our minds, that no matter what happens in this world and in our lives, we are always those whom the Lord blesses. His favor in these verses rests upon us. These verses talk about the restoration from the ruination of sin, the restoration of God's favor upon his people. And it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Well, that leads us, as we look at these last two verses, to a response. It has to. The way we've gone through Isaiah, we are right to note that each of those songs that preceded this one I don't think this is a fifth servant song, but it could be. 
But in each of those previous four songs so clearly set before us, at each point, at the end of each of those songs, there is a response by the people represented by Isaiah, but speaking on behalf of the redeemed. And no less do we have the case here in verses 10 and 11. The speaker now is Isaiah speaking for the redeemed of the Lord. He is now speaking about the characteristics, the marks, as one commentator says, of the redeemed. What are those marks? Now, as I mentioned these, think by way of application. These ought to be seen in our lives as well. These are the marks of the redeemed, the the character of the redeemed. First of all, you see in verse 10 that the people who are redeemed are a people rejoicing. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. They are first and foremost a people who rejoice, who are filled with joy and thanksgiving to God. That's why Paul, at the end of his letter to the Philippians, writes what he does. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. No matter the trials, no matter the tribulations of this life, we as believers, because of the blessings of salvation, we have cause and reason to rejoice. And we'll see the highlight, the the biggest cause we see in the next verse, or the, the next part of this verse. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, Paul writes. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The first mark of a believer, of one who is redeemed by the Lord, is rejoicing always. And in the midst of every circumstance of this life, we always have a reason to rejoice. But secondly, another mark is really a cause. What I think here we see as the main cause of our rejoicing. And you see it in verse 10. It's the imagery again of exchange. He's clothed us. We who were clothed once with the guilt and shame of our sin. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. And he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is a wonderful and glorious picture of her being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's really what this picture is. The beauty that we possess is the beauty of Christ set upon us in the robes of his righteousness given to us. In that great exchange that takes place when we come to Jesus with all of our sin and in response and in exchange for our sin, he gives us his perfect obedience and righteousness. Revelation 19, I think, has this very text in mind when it says this, John writes, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
Now, don't make a mistake there. It's John is not saying that it's our righteousness, our righteous deeds. He's a referring here to the righteousness of Christ that becomes ours. And it's pictured as a glorious gown, a linen, bright and pure gown that is given to us, that we might stand before the Lord in the perfect obedience and righteousness of Christ. Now, I say that there is always a reason to rejoice no matter what we're going through because of this very truth. No circumstance or providence of this life that ever happens to us can change that reality. We are always standing before the Lord clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a bride adorned for her maker and for her savior. So we see a people rejoicing. That's one of the marks. We see a cause given to us for that rejoicing. Finally, we see what I'm referring to here as an invitation to rejoicing. What do I mean by that? Verse 11 says this, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise, or worship is another word often used in this point, to sprout up before all the nations. Here we see the outward focus, the very way in which God will call the Gentiles because his people planted again in the earth, sown in the earth, will sprout up. And out of this sprouting will come righteousness. That is right living, righteousness, reflecting the righteousness of God. And praise and worship of our lips will sprout up before all the nations that they might see that we are the blessed of God and that they might come and enter into that by God's grace as well. This is the way Peter says it. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul put it this way to the Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the way that Jesus put it in John 15. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so you prove to be my disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You see, by our lives, the world itself has cause to rejoice if they would, but by the grace of God, see his blessing, his favor resting upon us, understand the reason why his favor rests upon us because of Christ and come and join in this great triumphant people whom the Lord himself is redeeming. This is the picture that Isaiah writes for us here. These are the marks of those who are redeemed. I said, I think verse 10 really stands at the heart of all of this. I think it really is the heart of this whole chapter as we consider 
the righteousness of Jesus Christ being the main cause for our rejoicing. As I was thinking this week, I was reminded of another illustration that I've used, I know, in the past, but it shows the intentionality that we need to exhibit and have in our lives as we consider God's work of grace in our lives, how intentional we have to be every day in the midst of the trials and sufferings and difficulties of this life. It's often hard. I've spoken at other times of how distracted we can get by the things of this world, the news that we see and read. I've talked at other times of just generally how distracted we can be from day to day. We can go from Sunday to Sunday and realize that between those two days, that glorious day that God has set apart, we've given very little thought of God and of his mercies, very little thought of the reasons we have to rejoice in him. Because life is hard, it's demanding. So my point is, we have to be intentional. We have to remember, and as it were, the psalmist says, count the blessings of God, number them one by one. Even though he says it would be beyond my capability to do so. Still, he says, if I were to do it, think upon them. The reason I say all of this is because of this illustration, which is one of my favorites. It's said of G. J. Gretchen Machen, most of you know that name, that when he was on his deathbed, he sent a note to his very good friend, John Murray, who was at that time a professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. It was Machen, of course, who led to the formation of the seminary as he stood against the liberalism of the mainline church, began not only the seminary, but also the a denomination that would become the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, happening in the earlier part of the last century. And this is the great word. In, in those final days, Machen wrote these words to his dear friend. He says, Of all the most wonderful blessings that I have received and known at the hand of my Savior, I am most thankful at this moment for the active obedience of Christ. Now that's a theologian speaking, so let me express to you what he's saying. Mary knew exactly what Machen, of course, was saying. For theologians like Machen and Mary, they understood that Christ's obedience to his Father's will in coming to this world and taking on the form of a man was referred to under two headings, his passive obedience and his active obedience. His passive obedience was his willingness to go when he spoke no word, nor did he open his mouth, when he was willing to go to the cross. It's Isaiah 53. It's of a bound Savior who had committed no wrong, passively walking through the steps the Lord his Father had sent before him and being willing to die on the cross for our sins to pay the penalty that his people deserved, to give himself as a ransom for them. It's through his passive obedience, his death on the cross and the shedding of his blood, that we often speak of the forgiveness of our sins and the cleansing of our lives because of that blood. But brothers and sisters, we need more than just the forgiveness of our sins. You know that. You know that to be true. That's often a shocking statement to people. Well, pastor, why is the forgiveness of my sins not enough? 
Because God is holy in all of his ways. And what he requires of anyone who would stand before them is not merely the absence of sin and rebellion, having been paid for by the blood of Christ, but the presence and reality of a perfect obedience to his holy law. And that is where the act of obedience comes into the forefront. It is because of Christ's willingness to obey the law at every point and fulfill it perfectly, keeping the law, that we receive these robes of righteousness so that God now looks upon us as those who have perfectly kept the law of God. We need both his passive and active obedience. And what Machen is saying at this very point, and it's the point of death, is this. I am most grateful now, knowing that by his shed blood my sins are forgiven, that I have as well his perfect righteousness as a robe that covers me. And it brought him great delight. Believer, this morning... I'm here to tell you this, that when you sit, when you stand or lie, whenever it is that God will call you home, and should he grant to you time that you might reflect upon these things, with Machen you will delight and you will rejoice in this great truth, that you go then before the Father when he calls you covered in a robe of righteousness, which is won for you through Jesus Christ by his active obedience to the law. It will be your great delight as well. But if you do not intentionally throughout your life daily reflect upon these blessings, what will those moments be if you cannot remember or think of your greatest joys? And so each day and every moment rejoice, exult in the Lord, your God, for his salvation, because it is not my works but it is Christ's works that speak for us. It is his works that cover us. Our fitting and only response to these things is in the words of another great hymn of our faith written by John Newton. Let us then love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. For he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood, and he has brought us clothed in the righteousness of Christ near to God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we would be a people, we pray, who would daily and moment by moment exalt and praise and adore you for these things. May they daily be in the forefront of our minds as we consider the call here in Isaiah 61 to be such a people. And Father, no matter what may come, may we always rejoice that we are clothed ultimately in the robes of Christ's righteousness, acceptable in your sight, beautiful in your sight because of him. May that always be our chief joy and delight now and always until you call us to yourself. We pray and ask all of this with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.